Hi everyone, I'm Carol Wang. Welcome to a special season of Health 101. We're focusing these episodes on what the COVID-19 pandemic has wrought to our health emotionally, physically, and mentally. And while we're addressing the effects this has had on physicians and their healthcare colleagues, we know these themes are universal. So if you recognize yourself or someone you love in our conversations, we urge you to seek help for yourself or for them. I'll have more resources at the end of the show. And a quick note of gratitude to the Copic Foundation for making this version of Health 101 possible. So we know that COVID-19 has intensified a mental health crisis in our country, in the world, and we know that frontline workers have absorbed so much trauma that we can't even begin to talk about it probably. Um, And we know that our youth and our teens are in crisis in terms of mental health. So this episode, we really are going to talk openly about depression, severe depression, and suicide. And I have two people who I think are really well adept at talking about that. Dr. Nicholas Basilet, who is a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and Cynthia Paul, who is an adult psychiatrist. And I think the first thing I think we have to put open out there is suicide, severe depression, are really difficult discussions for conversation. They are difficult to talk with loved ones. They're difficult to talk openly. We have stigmas. We have fears. Um, What and how should we be thinking about it? Because while we're trying to be sensitive, I think inevitably we say things awkwardly. And so are there tools and thoughts that you guys each have that you say, you know, if you're if you're going down this road and you're having to have serious discussions, maybe not do it this way. One of the things that I always think about when I'm working with patients and families is we need to have an eye to normalize this. I think that's one of the problems. All types of medical conditions in the world, and we kind of dance around this instead of saying, this is something that's happening to you and a loved one, and there are answers for this. Here are some things that we can do, but dancing around it, not talking about it isn't helpful. So just like we treat other medical conditions, we can treat this and kind of just be open and honest and forward with it and say, you know, don't uh, uh, think inside that you need to treat this differently. The more we normalize it and say this is like other medical conditions, the better conversations that we have and the more comfortable people feel getting the right help. No, I agree. And I think when you talk to the child and adolescent population, it's kind of the same thing that don't want to approach it from a way that is going to make the kid think I'm going to be in trouble. I don't want to say anything because they're going to be mad or I'm you know, going to lose my phone or whatever else. And, you know, if your kid had a headache, you wouldn't question, you know, hey, how's your headache? Does it hurt? You know, when did it start? This shouldn't be any different is, you know, how is your mood? You know, have you been having thoughts like this or, you know, has anything changed and just, again, normalizing it? If you have lost a loved one because of suicide or you have seen a loved one go through an attempted suicide, I think you think about it in terms of it's the result of a long line of either warning signs or deepening depression or situation that has digressed. Is that the way we should think about it? Is that a proper contextual? I think there are different ways to think about it. So I think there are signs that you look for and think about. But I think 
you know, putting that all in one bucket isn't helpful because very frequently we have uh, impulsive attempts, impulsive completed suicides, and you don't look back and see those textbook things that you expect to see. Um, So I think an important thing is to say, you know, what can we do here and now? And if you're working with a family, you know, this is how it presents for some people. And you can only do so much. You can get help for your family. You can get help for yourself. But um, there isn't always a series of a crisis or meds or a trajectory that's the same for everyone. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've had parents come in and say, they, I thought they were doing really well. They kept it together and were doing fine in school and put on that happy face when they were around family or friends. There really was no way for them to know, and you can't beat yourself up over that and say, oh, you know, what did I do wrong as a parent? Because if the signs aren't there, there's nothing more you can do on that. So we know that our frontline workers, we've seen some high-profile suicides from doctors around the country. We have heard, um, and and a lot of times we have heard um, people just, the trauma has been too much to process. Tell me how we should go about, because that's a really tough journey from a colleague perspective, from a coworker perspective, to start addressing what you think looks like severe depression more abnormally than on a more severe basis than everyone else, because I think so many people show signs of distress in different ways? I think healthcare workers um, are taught through their training to always think about the patient in front of them and what's the right thing to do and to take on more and more and to go to work every day and you got to put it over in this compartmentalize things over in this box and they don't prioritize their health as they go along. So one of the things that I think is the most important thing to do is to um, talk to healthcare workers about their experiences, but don't act like this is a uh, result of not being resilient or a result of 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 you know if you would have done worked harder, done something different. Because we do have a tendency sometimes, I think, with frontline workers to be like, "Oh, hey, that's part of the job. Just get on." And then kind of somehow uh, inadvertently, I think, uh, uh, speak to healthcare workers or frontline workers of, you know, be more resilient about what you have to deal with. And I think that is kind of uh, the wrong uh, way to go about it. And I think sometimes they get that message and then it's even harder for them to share their experiences that they have. I also think there's that pressing on because you don't want to let your colleagues down because everyone's got a lot on their plates and I'm not going to take the time off. I'm not going to address this issue because everyone else seems to be doing okay. Why can't I deal with this? You know, it's the old, you can't help anyone if you're not taking care of yourself. And it's reminding people of that. And that's just as important, if not more important, because if you're not doing well, you're not going to be around and think of how many other hundreds or thousands of people you're not going to be able to help down the road because you didn't address it because you wanted to push on, push on, push on. So you have to kind of stop and remind yourself to look at the bigger picture that 
you know, yeah, I'll see a patient or two less today, but I needed that hour or two for my own mental well-being. And as a result, I'm going to be a better provider tomorrow when I come back. And then I think in the alternate, um, I think kids have absorbed the pain. They've had their own challenges, and then they've absorbed the pain of what they've watched families undergo. And so how do you, how do you handle children, and how do you, in terms of starting to recognize that that's not temporary? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's not an easy, obvious answer, but again, it's just improving communication and making this normal and, you know, talking to kids and saying, hey, there's a lot that's gone on in the last year and a half, and it affects us all in a lot of different ways. We probably don't even realize, you know, has it affected you like this? And, you know, for some families with finances getting tighter, whatever else, and then there's more stress in the home, and they're witnessing that on top of everything else. And, you know, again, just having the conversations that everyone likes to put off because they're not fun, but are very needed. I feel like the adults need to have that conversation, <laughs> too, in terms of being honest. Absolutely. I mean, that goes back to your point, too, about healthcare workers, which is, you know, there's always someone else to help. And if I'm letting my team down and not doing my part, you know, if we foster a culture that we talk about it and accept that as, as part of the job that we all have to deal with, you can start having some conversations and hopefully people think it's not about letting my colleague down. It's about having a hard conversation so we all take care of each other. So how do we start having that conversation? How do you recognize in someone else or in yourself that you're not okay or that they're not okay? That's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I will speak to the second part of that question first uh, about what do I recognize in myself? You know, we've all had a year of... Of, of strain and uh, trying to take care of people that, you know, maybe were struggling before the pandemic even even happened. So everybody is busy. There's more work than you can do. And understanding that if I don't take care of myself, I can't do any of the work. So I look for things f- for myself personally, like concentration issues. If I get to the end of my day and I just feel overwhelmed and I can't focus and I'm exhausted, you start thinking, you know, what do I need to do different? Is this, I need to keep an eye on this. And one of the, the simple, easy ways, but it works so well, I think it works well for other people too, is you need to just disengage from your work at a certain time during the day. So I leave my office every day and I go for a walk. I have done that for years. I get out and I don't think about work and even sometimes have to, you know, listen to a podcast or listen to music so I don't go back and make myself leave. There is always something to do, and that will be there no matter what. So you got to kind of force yourself to make the time to do that. That really helps me with that uh, uh, burnout and feeling overwhelmed. And I think in terms of, you know, keeping an eye on our colleagues too, and if you notice their performance or even the way they're interacting with patients or staff is changing, they're getting a little shorter, you know, kind of frustration tolerance is getting lower, things like that, that may indicate maybe there's something a little more going on at the end of the day. Hey, everything going all right? I know things have been busy. How are you doing? And the simple question is that to give them the opening and they may take it, they may not, but at least they know they have someone there that, you know, is interested and willing to talk should they need it. 
is the best that we all can do as outsiders is be friends, is to let them know that you're there because there are lots of people who won't want to acknowledge that they're in trouble, who won't want to ask for help. Um, is it simply knowing that there are people who are caring about you the best that we can do? I think letting them know, but also kind of letting them know it's okay to be that way and saying, you know, hey, when I get down or overwhelmed or when I'm burned out, this is what I notice. I have this, this, and I'm just not myself and I can't, you know, practice in a way that I would normally. And this is what's been hard for me. And sometimes when you hear somebody else saying that, it's going to make you more comfortable opening up and talking about your own struggles because you don't feel like you have to put on this persona of, you know, invincible and can keep going and nothing gets to me and those unrealistic expectations sometimes we have for ourselves. And I think advocating in the workplace, you know, so many physicians today are employed physicians and there's, you know, a a difficult private insurance market, I think, for some. So understanding that, you know, we need to have boundaries for ourselves and we need to have boundaries for our colleagues too, because we can understand that. So if somebody's struggling with with, uh, uh, you know, being pushed to the limit, you know, advocating for them and saying, this is part of why this is happening as a system. So we need to address this globally because that can affect change across that system. And that's one way that I think we can really support each other is by saying, no, this makes sense to me if this person is struggling. These are the reasons why that I see. Let's have a conversation about how we change that so everybody's healthy. And sometimes that means talking to an administration or bringing up hard conversations to have. But they're important to have. Yeah. Now they go home to a family that is struggling as well. So how do you see it in the other people that you live with and that you love and that they're not doing as well? Especially, I think about teenagers who they don't tell you squat anyway. <laughs> so how do you get them to talk about something like this? Again, I think it comes down to letting them know you're there to talk, but also realizing as a teenager, parents probably aren't going to be the number one person they go to and being okay with that, but finding someone else, whether it's another trusted adult or a therapist or a coach or a teacher, you know, friends, people that they have an outlet. That's part of development. You shouldn't always want to go to mom and dad with everything as much as it kills parents to hear that. So be realistic about it. They're, they may not. doesn't mean you don't keep trying and let them know you're open to talk about it, but also providing them with other avenues and other outlets to discuss it. And I think spending time together because, you know, if kids aren't going to open up, one of the best things I ever heard is, well, spend time with your child, and if you're there, you get the conversations. So don't just say, I'm here for you to talk to me about it. Let's go share something because then you create an environment where people will talk in a, in ways that they maybe wouldn't. So just kind of doing things together provides them with a forum that's safe and they know they can. And hopefully with that and prompting and um, all of the other kind of resources that you mentioned about other trusted adults, hopefully that will help some conversation start. Has COVID-19 been a trigger for what was already people dealing with some mental health issues. You know, chicken or the egg sometimes, I think, is what people are trying to figure out, some of our after effects and what happens now. You know, and I hate using cliches, but I think it kind of added on to the perfect storm. You had 
healthcare or mental health care issues increasing, you know, suicidality and suicidal thoughts, depression in kids and adults going up before COVID. So then now you isolate them from friends and family and add on financial stressors and other health things and the anxiety related to not knowing how long am I going to have to wear a mask or stay home. And it, you know, kind of gas on the fire, really accelerating a trend we were already seeing. I agree with that. I mean, uh, uh, everything's magnified, I think, when you're struggling already and you have all of the changes in the world. And, and I've seen it across the board, mostly with acuity. And, you know, the beginning of the pandemic, I had a lot of kind of folks with social anxiety that were like, this is, I'm living my best life. <laughs> like, I have trained my whole life for this, and I am so fine being home. But even that, I have noticed that has even caught up, you know, folks that, that enjoy that. Um, and, and I think one of the things we can learn, too, is that that's okay to celebrate that. If you like to be a homebody and you like to work from home and this is good, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And let's not act like that's uh, a strange or different thing. That's wonderful for some people. So let's celebrate it. But also struggling with that with those folks, you know, it just caught up to even people that um, enjoyed some of the changes at the beginning because it just dragged on for so long. So even people that I think, you know, liked some of the initial changes, it still caught up with them, the isolation. Which then leads me to, we are opening up, people are getting vaccinated, we are hopefully, knock on wood, going to normalize whatever normal is or the next version of ourselves. Does some of the fears of this may resolve itself in terms of, for some people, mild depression, I'm going to guess, might resolve itself because it may have been very pandemic and isolated related. What's going to resolve? What's not going to resolve? Like, how do you know, you know, oh, everyone's sunshine, you know, sunshine and summer and everyone's back and we can smile and see each other. Does that take care of some of this? Maybe? Certainly hope so. You know, I, I don't know that we can say for sure it's this percentage that'll be fine once it clears or we get back to our new normal. But anytime you can take away the big stressors, it stands to reason. Some people are going to have, you know, better resiliency or not resilience, but just less to worry about, so to speak, so then better able to cope and deal so, you know, the hopeful, optimistic side is, yeah, it should help some people. Is it going to make depression go away altogether? Nope, because as we said, this was increasing even before COVID. And I think it will be helpful. You know, we live in societies for a reason. We're social creatures, and that's just kind of part of, of who we are. And uh, one of the things that I kind of see as a theme that's difficult is loneliness, people struggling with loneliness before the pandemic. And how do you, how do you treat loneliness? It's, it's different than kind of your traditional textbook psychiatric issue that we're going to treat. So then you have a lockdown that even exacerbates that for people that didn't struggle with that beforehand. So I do think there's going to be some some improvement for some folks to just be able to get back to those simple things in their community. One of my biggest concerns is really the impact of health professionals because it has really restrained the, the caretakers in all different roles in our society, and it's unlike anything you know, that I think anybody expected they would live through. You hear about the, the flu, and you learn about it in med school, and you never think, oh, well, wow, this really was something that I lived through. So that's that population, I think that's going to be a, a road back 
I think the thing that I feel like we all collectively need is help processing what has just happened to us individually, collectively. Um, you know, the past year and a half has brought probably some joys to people's lives and some devastating sadness and the whole gamut of, of emotional context. Is it a time issue of people need to sit and process this? Is it a space issue? Is it a openness of talking about the fact of sharing their experiences that will make that better for everyone in terms of eliminating stigma and helping? No, I think, yeah, some of it will be waiting to see down the road how this affects some people because we have the ones that are still soldiering on and not taking time to kind of realize how it has affected them. So it's, again, giving it some time, but removing the stigma, continuing to talk about it, continuing to provide opportunities and just let people have some time. It's okay sometimes to need a little extra time to to realize and to work on what you have going on and you know, not everyone's going to process it the same way. And, you know, people have a, a similar experience. I think that could be helpful about talking about it. You know, everybody, most, maybe not everybody, but by this point, most people have uh, a peripheral or personal experience with how difficult this was. So there's a platform that's a commonality to start to be able to have conversations about it because it was hard for everybody, you know, and maybe that can help us eliminate the, well, you know, I don't ever know what depression is like because no one in my family's ever had it. You're over there versus we've all had this shared trauma and maybe we can start having some connections through that that maybe we wouldn't have done before. I feel like psychiatry there are going to be papers written about this from a psychiatry perspective for years and years on about this. Because I don't know that in the 1928 pandemic, you know, the 1920s flu, 18 flu, that you saw them analyze how it affected the mental health of the country. And I, so do you in some ways feel like you guys are walking through uncharted territory because what happens next is still large. There's no pathway. There's no textbook. There's no write-up that says, okay, 20% of people are going to do this. You know, there's nothing to expect except for waiting to see what happens. going to be a whole lot of PhD theses coming <laughs> in the future with this, I think. You know, whole careers about just studying, you know, small aspects of, of what everybody went through globally. So it, it, you don't have a roadmap. No, there there is no you know plan laid out. But I think it's an opportunity. In the past, when we had big worldwide crisis like this again, the stigma you didn't talk about suicide, you didn't talk about depression as much back then. Hopefully, now we can and use this. Yeah, COVID was terrible, and but let's have something good come out of it where we can start talking about this more down the road and really look to see how this is affecting families and you know healthcare workers and everyone involved. What do you want to tell your peers, your friends, the people who have not walked in through your doors and have not yet acknowledged that they may need to walk through their your door, but they're not there yet? What do you want them 
to think about? What do you want them to feel okay about as part of this stigma reduction? You know, once we start talking about things, we're not alone. And one of the biggest things I think about is if if you can encourage people to start talking, you understand that you're not, not alone. So, and that's one of the things that you start to realize when you do this job is, you know, people struggle everywhere with similar things, but we don't talk about it. So, if we start talking about it, understand that you are not alone. So, when you come through the door, there are uh, just tons of people like yourself that uh, uh, are out there and maybe not talking about it. So, you really aren't alone. You might feel alone, but you really aren't, and we just need to do better about talking about it globally so people don't feel like they're alone. Yeah, I think I just kind of want to remind everyone that seeking help doesn't make you weak or mean you're flawed or there's anything wrong with you. On the contrary, it means you're strong and took that step to get help and can help yourself. And hopefully some of your colleagues or friends will see you getting help and use that as some motivation and to kind of help give them the nudge they needed to get help. So you can be helping yourself, but also helping others by simply getting the help you need. I certainly hope listening to this makes people think. And even if they don't want to admit for themselves, sometimes I feel like in recognizing it in someone else, you mirror it and you realize that you may not be in as good a shape as you thought you were or that you are not as invincible as you thought you were. And that there's there's always a little hope at the end of the tunnel. Lots of times we will do things for others that we won't do for ourselves. So that's one thing that that we can encourage people to do is that if you have people that are concerned about you, lots of times someone will go get help for someone else. You know, I'm worried about my, my, my kids and maybe I wouldn't do it for me, but I'll do it for them. That's a doorway to start conversations. So I think if we remember some of that as well, that, um, you know, you're not just doing it for you. And if you can do it for someone else, that's all that matters. Okay, everyone, be well. If you or someone you care about needs immediate help, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. We also have more resources on our website, omahamedical.com, including an online assessment and options to access care for physicians in the region. A Huda Media Production.